are listening to the Citrep Podcast, your source for everything related to historical wargaming. Whether you are looking for the latest wargaming news, reviews, painting tutorials, or playthroughs, you will hear about it right here. So grab your favorite beverage or brush and let's hit it. Hello, everybody. This is Bill from the Sitrep Podcast, and you are joining us for the next exciting episode of the show. Joining me here on the airwaves of the interweb is Big Jim Ruskini, our gaming historical guru. Jim, how are you today, sir? Hello, everybody. Not doing too bad. Excellent. And you you survived Elsa, did you? I uh, kind of missed this. Uh, mostly, yes. Yeah, awesome. And then here in the Midwest, uh, joining me is Marty. How are you, sir? Good morning. Good morning. Uh, I am doing well. And uh, yeah, also miss me too. <laughs> I think we're getting the back end of it right now, but uh, yeah. Yeah, it is. It, yeah. So, you know, we're in the uh, Chicago metro area and it is unseasonably cool. I mean, it's, it's probably 68 degrees on my back porch right now. Right. So, yeah. So, um, Chris uh, is and, probably knee deep, head deep, neck deep in computer land, uh, doing whatever it, those computer people do. He just texted me back and is uh, going to join us momentarily. All so right. Well, he, he, he will be a late addition to the show. All right. So, as tradition here on the podcast, we start off with, you know, a quick catch-up by everybody, you know, since this is an every-other-week show. Just kind of getting, what are you doing for your hobbying, gaming, over the past two weeks? And, uh, Marty, we'll start with you, sir. All right. So, uh, I have been uh, working away on my little uh, Afghan National Police. I'm almost done with them. I got, uh, what do I got left to do? I just got to do some highlights, and I think I got to finish some of the weapons. So that's like 15 little dudes that I've been working on at 28 mil. So I'm pretty excited. I'll be able to add those to my boards shortly. And uh, since the last podcast, uh, I ordered from uh, our friend Chris Wong's uh company uh i was order number one thank you thank you very much uh mo- mostly because i was helping him uh i wanted to help him test out you know that everything worked on his online store and whatnot but he sent me a bunch of crap so i've got uh a bunch of insurgents and civilians and uh he gave me the dude with the shopping cart of doom you know with the awesome uh, you know so i got that plus a uh a tripod mounted uh, uh 50 or dasha or whatever it is some RPK guys, some RPG guys, some PKM guys. Uh, there's some wounded dudes. And uh, when he sends those, they're still uh, on the support. So I've removed all the support. Uh, I'm uh, proud and sad to announce at the same time that I only broke two gun barrels. <laughs> it turns out i got to pay attention to where I'm grabbing stuff when I yank it out. So, And I, uh, I already replaced those. So they won't look exactly right because it might look like a paper clip sticking out of the end of a barrel right now. But, uh, you know, once it's paid, it'll be fine. Sure. And then there, and then there's some wounded, uh, wounded guys as well. Uh, and, uh, I based all those dudes. I put them all on, on bases except for the wounded guys. Cause they're like all prone or sitting down. Uh, but I figured I would save those and, uh, maybe we show those off on, uh, you know, Wednesday night, uh, 
live session or something and do a little painting on them or whatever. So I haven't painted those guys yet. Hey, so uh, just for clarification, when you say they're crap, he sent you a bunch of crap. He sent you a bunch of good stuff. It's not crap. Well, yeah, no, no, no. It's it's quality stuff. Yeah, but you know, I I, I ordered like a set of insurgents of like uh, I don't know, it was like eight dudes, and he sent me like forty. Right. No, I'm, so, I I understand. Yeah. Just not everybody understands the same. You know. Yeah. No, it's it's good stuff. We'll show them off. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Very good. And that other voice you just heard, that is Sir Chris. Sir Chris, how are you, sir? I'm doing good. Sorry, I was running a little late today. No worries. So, um, Marty, you got anything else for us? Uh, that's, uh, no, that's about it for, for hobby stuff that I've been working on uh, the right. next couple of weeks. How about you, Chris? I hear you actually took paint to model. I did. What? I'm painting... Yeah, I'm painting my uh, uh, oak and iron uh, ships. Um, I was uh, reminded why I can't stand painting. <laughs> wow! Yeah, are three little boats like an inch. Yeah, they're like come on yeah, now. come on. I, I, no, it's it's first off, it's nine ships. Yeah. Yes, that some of them are an inch long. Some of them are. Um, three, four inches long, but it, it's just, you know, I don't have the, uh, skill set to paint, you know, ah. um, trying to get the, trying to get the paint and the paint get after it. It's not just that. Well, so. Chris, I am just very proud that you put paint on a miniature. Thank you. Thank you. Well so, done. Well, well done. done. All right. It doesn't matter how good you are as long as and, you do it and you have fun doing it, you know? And, and that, wait, 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 and wait, wait, wait. So, wait, wait, wait. You, you said I have to have fun doing it? Well, that's usually it's how it goes. fun. I'd rather be at work, believe it or not. All right. There's something wrong with you. Uh, to, um, you we're going to miss We're going to miss you, Chris. Yep. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and moving on to the man himself, our historical guru, who's getting ready for another big uh, campaign in uh, the Falkland Islands, as I understand it. Jim, how are you, sir? And what's going on? All righty. So, um, yeah, things have been pretty busy um, as of late. Um, we've started off with uh, some 20 millimeter gaming and sort of miniature rehab uh for uh, my american revolution in 20 millimeter or one to 72 mm -hmm. uh, those miniatures are in kind of bad shape in a lot of places so we recently put out a video for uh july 4th where we looked over you know trying to get these miniatures back in you know serviceable condition um explaining how the rules worked and then explaining you know actually going through a couple turns um uh, you know of actual tabletop play Right. So that's used up quite a bit of time. Um, my dining room table is still that same table. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and finish that game at my earliest uh, possible possibility and or convenience. Uh, we may go ahead and film the rest of that game. But um, if you're interested in seeing how it's going so far, yeah, that video has been up on our channel now for uh, for about a week. Yeah, it's a really good um, video. Yeah, really nice. Oh, cool. Thanks. Um, 
We've also uh, had a couple episodes of Arab Israeli Wars with our friend Piotr, uh, where we did um, the tank clash at Beer Gifkafa on, uh, I think it's 2nd November 1956. This is the second big Arab Israeli War. The first one, of course, was Israel's War of Independence in 48. Um, and then this is like the first, okay, the two countries are now set up, Egypt and Israel, and they're actually, you know, throwing down with their own armies. Um, for the first time, because in 1948, both countries were sort of emerging from out, or emerging out from under the British Empire. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the British were just pulling out. Uh, we had the Balfour Declaration, and you know all that stuff like that. So that only really kicks off really in 40. It's definitely a big war, but it's not really a, a battlefield kind of a war. Uh, 56 was the first big. Egypt and Israel now have their own armies. Such as they were at the time. I mean, they were. <laughs> they, they were they, both countries were really just kind of starting out as their own independent powers. Right. Um, yeah, this was just the biggest tank battle um, of that war. A lot of people like to, you know, think about, um, you know, Patton's war or what might have happened if the uh, Western Allies and the Soviets had really immediately thrown down in Europe after the end of World War II. Um, which was, of course, a ludicrous impossibility, but some people still like to like, imagine it or whatever. You don't really have to imagine it. You can put T-34s and SU-100s up against Shermans instantly, and you can do it you know, in a, in a real-life historical context. Um, you just have to go to the Sinai to do it. Mm-hmm. So those two videos are up. Um, uh, Piotr and I, has, have, or I should say Piotr, has also been helping me with uh, playtesting the new Valor and Victory um, Stalingrad scenario pack that is being developed for... Um, Matrix slash Yobo War Games slash Slytherin. I'm not entirely sure how those partners all kind of interrelate or whatever. But this is the same game, uh, Bill, that you and I uh, took a first look at yeah. um, in Normandy. So a second wave of that is coming out. I think the schedule is later this year, um, near the end of this year. Maybe it might go into the beginning of 2021. I'm not sure about that. And um, part of the DLC for that game is going to, um, to, at least the plan is at the moment. Everything here is is just the plan. I, I don't want to, you know, put anybody on the spot. Mm-hmm. Um, but the plan is that there will be a Stalingrad, a 12-game Stalingrad campaign, um, scenarios designed by myself to uh, be released along with that package um, for the Eastern Front. So part two or wave two, release two is going to include the rest of the rules that aren't really in there at the moment. Offboard artillery, support packages, airstrikes, snipers, Valorous units, et cetera, ex- uh, vehicles, um, et cetera, et cetera. All the stuff that's kind of not really in there at the moment. They're going to roll out for uh, part two of that game. It's going to be set on the Eastern Front uh, in general. And then specifically, there's going to be a Stalingrad uh, 12 scenario uh, pack that we hope to um, release also as DLC. So that that those scenarios are all designed. They've all been submitted. Uh, the maps have all been designed. They've all been submitted. Now we just have to play test them. So yeah, uh, we've been working on that. Awesome. Um, over over the weekend, uh, I put together a one to seventy two or twenty millimeter A ten Warthog because we're the Sit Rep Podcast, and you have to have an A ten somewhere in your collection. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just a snap tight. Guys, so it's not exactly like a Forge World miniature as far as quality goes. Um, it was, you know, the only thing that was really available for the weekend down at the Michael's Crafts. I just needed to put something together like right now. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I brought, I was visiting my dad and I brought a bunch of stuff up there like to work on or whatever. Like, Cause he has like this huge workshop. And then when I got there, I realized I forgot to bring the miniatures that I wanted to paint. I brought the paints, I brought the washes, I brought the, the brushes, the thinners, the matte varnish, everything except the friggin' miniature because I'm extra stupid oh. in the summer, I guess. So I was like, I, I got to build something. I brought all this stuff with it. So we just went to the nearest Michael's craft store and I was like, what do they have that I could possibly use? And most of my miniatures, uh, my modern miniatures are in 20 mil. So they had a, a 1 to 72, which is close enough to 20 mil, um, A10 Warthog. So I brought it home, opened it up, realized it was a repack. Uh, some poor eight-year-old kid had apparently, you know, gotten it, put it together a little bit, given up on it. They just shoved what was in the box back into the box. Oh, you're kidding. And put it back on the shelf. Yeah, so... It became more of a uh, of a miniature rescue mission, um, as far as uh, or a model kit rescue mission. Mm-hmm. I did shoot video for it. I haven't really reviewed it yet. I don't know if there's going to be a video release about the build and paint of that A10. Um, we have raw footage. I just don't know if it's if it's that good. Also, it's a again a snap tight, so it's like you know a model made for an eight to ten year old. It's it's not uh, it's not exactly uh, the best of quality. Uh, yeah, that might like, be kind of interesting to see, though. Uh, you know, but what, what you got in the repack, and then what you had to do to, uh, you know, get it get it together and get it, uh, you know, up to snuff, so to speak. Well, for people who might not be aware, a snap tight is a model like literally made for kids. Like, if you have a kid and he, you think he might be into hobby, or he or she might be into miniatures or hobby or building models, you buy him snap tight. It doesn't need glue. It doesn't need paint. And the, the the decals are literal, like, you know, sticker book stickers. They're not stickers, even like, yeah. Yeah, they're, yeah, they're really bad. Um, so it's all put together. It's all painted. It's all kind of, you know, refurbished. I used some putty to sort of fill in some of the gaps. I did give it a paint job, obviously. Um, it, it looks better than any level two snap type model has the right to look. Um, I just don't, I mean, it's tabletop ready. If you would ever put a friggin a 10 warthog in a 20 millimeter game good god <laughs> that would yes. be for me. um you better be up against like a friggin brigade's worth of insurgents man because um yeah but who knows again it was just something that i had to build like that weekend um yeah nice. yeah it's it's put together it's okay but i don't know if it's like 100 percent uh you know it's tabletop ready i just it's, it's not gonna win any awards to be sure well, a couple wow. things on that. Do what Marty did. Find a competition where, you know, they didn't have enough entries for the amount of awards that they were giving out. Um, yeah. Also, I have to ask, yeah. go, to, yeah, go to a sci-fi convention that has a has a military uh, history uh, category. <laughs> yeah. They have, you know, I was, I was literally the only intern in the division. There you go. They, they have a gold, a, a gold, a silver, and a bronze, and only two people have entered. So you're gonna definitely win something. Although, although to, to my defense, uh, I did get uh, third overall. So uh, I did actually, I, I did actually compete against uh, some other folks there, and these were just tabletop ready models. They were, they, they were my toys that I play with. I had no intention of entering them. Until I got there, and one of the guys that I was playing uh, dust with was like, "Hey, those are pretty good. You should, you should put those in the painting contest." I was going to say, which, uh, which which miniature was this that won the award? So it was uh, it was uh, some uh, dust marine that uh, you know the armor isn't right, obviously, but uh, but it was a, a fifty cal team. 
So nice. the 50 w- was, you know, historically correct. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, and it was based pretty nice and whatnot. And I painted it up, you know, to a good tabletop standard. But I mean, not, that's all it was. I mean, I, you know, when I built those, those were some of the first models I had put together. And I hadn't planned on, you know, uh, you know, making this any kind of competition piece. And, you know, the, there were still some seam lines that were showing and, you know, I didn't like gap fill everything. You know, I didn't go a hundred percent on it. You know, that's, it certainly wasn't a try hard effort. You know, I just, you know, I'm like, Hey, I want, I want to do this. So I, so I did. And then, like I said, I have to be playing it. And guys like, you know, there's nobody that entered in the, the, the military category over here. Maybe you should put those in there. So they accepted it. And, See that Marines win even when they're not trying to win. That's, that's <laughs> <a bad. laughs> oh Lord! Um, and yeah, we've been building some Air War C twenty one stuff. Now we we've done the Falklands on Sitrep, you know, before, mm-hmm. um, way back in the day. Um, in fact, so far back in the day, the reason I kind of feel comfortable running at least uh, at least Falklands epi- uh, sort of games uh, or Falklands related games again is we ran it so far back in the history of SITREP that this was before we were uh, sort of simul-streaming or, or, or you know, restreaming uh, our content on Twitch out onto other platforms. So there's no recording of any of those games on YouTube, um, on our YouTube channel. And people have been asking about it. They're like, why are you guys going to cover the Falklands? We're like, dude, we've covered the Falklands. Right? Come on, look back in our history. Scroll, scroll, scroll. Oh, my God, it's not there. Okay, sorry, we'll, we'll, we'll run some Falkland games again. Um and it was like a, like a last minute, uh, a person um, you know, from the UK. So, you know, uh, the people in the UK love the Falklands War. Um, at least they do now. They didn't really at the time. Um, I don't want to get into all those politics. But, um, yeah, so, again, we had we had most of the files ready to go. So, uh, yeah, it should be almost a repeat of the game, uh, uh, Bill, that you mentioned in your video earlier today. Uh, at that first May 1st, uh, 1 May 1982, uh, the very first um, – FRS-1 Sea Harriers up against uh, uh, some Mirage 3 EAs, the first real air clash between uh, the Royal Navy and the, um, I, uh, I almost said Australian, dear Lord, um, the Argentinian Air Force. It'll be interesting to see. Are you playing the uh, Argentinians, I'm assuming? Yeah. Uh, will you play differently than you did against me? Have you thought about your strategy? Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, so one of the great things about Air War C-21 is that it's simply and organically, there are some other games I could mention that don't do this, but it simply and organically brings out the real differences between these different aircraft. So, I mean, the Harriers are obviously better than the Mirage 3 EAs, um, but why? Seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, the Mirage is faster, carriers are heavier uh, uh, armament load, um, a hell of a lot faster. Um, the Argentinian pilots in 1982 actually had some combat experience. There was a civil war going on at the time in which air power was used extensively. British didn't have a lick of air, but actual combat experience. Why? Why were the Harriers so much better than the, uh, uh, you know, I mean, they were outnumbered 10 to 1. Those two carriers, I say carriers in air quotes, uh, HMS Hermes, HMS Invincible carried at most 25 aircraft between them. They were up against 200 plus combat aircraft of the uh, Argentinian Navy and Air Force. So, outnumbered 10 to 1, they pretty much swept the skies of the Argentinian air power and didn't lose a single 
carrier through the course of the entire war, either the Army G, uh, GRS version or GF1 version, either the Army version or the Royal Air Force version, I should say, um, or the uh, or the Navy, uh, FRS-1. Not a single Harrier was lost in air-to-air -air combat. They lost two to ground fire and two to accidents. So, I mean, why? Why did that happen? Air War C-21 really does bring that out. Mm -hmm. One of the big things that helps is they were carrying the latest American M, I'm sorry, AIM-9L Sidewinder, and specifically the L variant. The L variant uh, is the one that allowed an infrared lock from any target aspect of incoming aircraft. So you do not have to get on the enemy's six right. before you can lock onto his engine heat, which at the time was a really big deal. Um, even nowadays, most infrared missiles, in, there's, there's semi-active radar homing missiles, which you can lock on from any angle, but they're not terribly accurate. Those are those big, you know, sparrows, uh, the big AMRAMs, stuff like that. Um, I mean, the AMRAMs are pretty good nowadays, but that's like 30 years later. At the time, semi-active radar homing missiles weren't that accurate. The trade-off was they were much longer ranged and you could fire them at enemy planes while they were still vectoring toward you. Mm -hmm. It wasn't very accurate. And, you know, anytime you launch a missile when the plane is coming at you, there's all this deflection stuff and it's, it's really hard. Um, sidewinders are deadly accurate, even back then. But up until you get to the L variant, you have to get behind the enemy, get on the six, and only then can you actually, can the missile see the engine exhaust enough to where, you know, you can get a lock and engage. Right. The, the AIM-9L was not like that. And that comes out in the game. It's a tiny little footnote. It's a little asterisk. Oh, by the way, you know, kind of thing. It's not like this gigantic, you know, Again, I won't mention other game companies, but most companies have these huge special rules that, um, you know, oh, by the way, you're using this, so you get a plus 20 to your die roll, and because uh, we think those games, we think those planes are awesome, we're going to make those planes awesome, artificially with this big, clunky, sort of straitjacket, top-down special rule that you only have if you bought the special book. Oh, by the way, here's the website to buy all our new books. Thank you for all your money. Um, <laughs> that, that stuff annoys me. At that uh, point, you're not playing the game. The game is playing you. You know, you only have access to certain rules if you bought certain books. And it's just, you know, who's going to sit on the toilet and read the rule book 17 times and literally have the whole thing dog-eared with a little, you know. But here, the, the these kind of games... Again, this is why I play Air War C-21 along with the other games that I enjoy. The, the game allows you, the player to reach that tactical insight first. Mm -hmm. You know, you'll sit there and you'll play and you'll be like, hey, this is a little thing. And after two or three games, you kind of realize this is an advantage I have. And I can do this and I can play this. And it also forces the enemy player or the opposing player to develop counter tactics. So this is a very long way of getting around to your question. How am I going to play? I'm going to try to vector in from multiple angles. I'm going to try to vector in from two sides. So that no matter which way the Harriers jump, my other element, basically I'm going to have two pair instead of uh, putting all my four planes in one big group. I'm going to have them in two pair, almost like a German swarm back in the Battle of Britain. And that way, whichever way the Harriers vector, at least two of my Mirages should have an easier time getting behind them. Because once my Mirages can get behind them, um, then I have infrared missiles and my infrared missiles can lock on from behind. Right. That's the big difference. And I should I should knock down at least one of those Harriers. It'll be interesting to you see. Know, knock on wood. We'll it, see what yep. happens. It's a so great game. Which side is getting the A10? Uh, <laughs> A10. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't think it's very effective in air-to-air -air combat. You'd be surprised. You can bet. Uh, you can, not against those. 
cannons at any angle. Yeah, but you have to get like within like a certain distance. However, you, you Google image, I do see a lot of A-10s carrying that double rack of A-9L Sidewinders. Yep. And again, to your point, um, the Harrier is not a fighter. I've gotten in big arguments with people on YouTube, mostly from the UK, who swear up and down that the Harrier is some kind of friggin' air superiority fighter. No, so, it's a ground so support sorry. weapon. No, it's not. It's a, it's no, a, it's it's a ground yeah. pounder. It's a ground pounder just like the A-10. Yep. They it's use it as a all, all day long. Yeah, they used it as a fighter because it had these certain missiles on them. Right. Um, which at the time were the new, but, you know, the new hotness. America pretty much emptied the NATO warehouses and sent them all down to the British. Which refutes another thing I always hear from the British. Why didn't America help in the uh, Falklands War? Well, there's all kinds of geostrategic considerations. And, oh, by the way, we did help. There's a reason your Air Force won that battle. And there's a reason your Navy had a place to stage its, its Navy. The leasing of the, of the islands on the Ascension Island and all that stuff like that. Also, would it really have done much good for us to make all bunch of enemies in Latin America in the no. early 80s Mm-mm. when we're fighting Colombia, we're getting ready to invade Panama, we're up against uh, El Salvador, is still hot, Guatemala's falling apart, and of course, you know, our boy, uh, I think his name was Daniel Ortega in Nicaragua. We had our plate full in Latin America, and we needed all the friends we can get. Right. The last thing we needed to do was to piss a bunch of people off. Yeah, well... And, and you and you hang those missiles off of uh, A-10s uh, and uh, the Harriers for the same reason for their self-defense. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's really what what it, what it's about. They're not meant to be an attack aircraft, not uh, air-to-air attack. Right. You know that that that's that's something to give them some standoff and boogie if they need to. Now in the Falklands, I mean, this is where the the, the obviously, I mean, the record speaks for itself. Um, the performance of the uh, of the army and especially the the navy FRS one Sea Harriers was I mean when you up against ten to one and you suffer a basically one hundred to zero kill ratio doing a job you weren't designed to do man that's freaking awesome man so we're not trying to take anything away from you know yeah no, no the real yeah. Navy. um it's just well, it's a testament I mean, to the armament in this case. This went to the armament and to the you know the uh, tenacity of the pilots. And again, uh, back, sure, yeah. back to Chris's point, um, the A-10. I mean, you know, I'm not going to send it out to intentionally tangle with MiG-29s or the new Sukhoi, uh, whatever the hell, the Sukhoi 35s or the JN-20, whatever the Chinese are flying around nowadays. But if they get vectored to a target, and the F-35s or the F-16s or the F-15s let one get by. Yeah, the A-10 is going to be able to defend itself with with surprising ability. It's not going to do it with the guns, because um, by the time it gets close enough to that guns, it's going to have a, you know about five of those accurate anti-tank or anti-aircraft missiles of its ass. Uh, but it's got those uh, the sidewinders, and the sidewinders can attack from any angle, um, so it doesn't have to dogfight with a far superior dogfight aircraft. Yeah. Well, now you could also do what Marty did, which is put every known missile and bomb on your A-10. It's got so a lot I might add that is, Yeah. Well, and uh, you know, so the the model that I have, uh, I I put the uh, full loadout. When I say full loadout, you know, it's like you can have it set up as this package. You can have it set up as this other package. You can set it up as uh, an electronic attack. You can, yeah, I put them all. All of it on there. So the instructions had options A, B, C, D, E, and Marty's response was, yes, please. All, all, <laughs> of, the, 
I hung all of the above off of it. I'm not sure it the physically fly. Yeah. It's one hell of a uh, ground-based aircraft, but um, when we say ground-based, we really mean ground-based. Yeah, because as it turns out, I can't even get it to stay on the flight stand. <laughs> yeah, you probably can't get it off the runway. <laughs> it better well, come off, or when it comes into land, it's going to shatter its landing gear. Uh, right? There's no reason to bring ammo back. Yeah, there really isn't. <laughs> All right. we, you know what the British did during the Falcons War? They had loaded dice. They had to have. Uh, yeah, it's called the M9L Sidewinder. Yeah, yeah, yeah I was going to say, I believe we just dis- discussed what that die was, too. Yeah. Uh, at least in air-to-air. Um, for ground attack, um, obviously the British did very well, but they, they had the exact aircraft to do that. And being a VTOL aircraft, the Harrier can get down to some absurdly low uh, stall speeds, which makes for pretty accurate bombing. Um, the guys who were doing ridiculously accurate bombing, almost too accurate, and again, the record bears this out, are the Argentinians. Um, the Argentinians were not the best dogfighters, the Argentinian pilots, but I tell you what, they were, again, they were in the middle of a long going, of a long ongoing civil war, where rebels were way up in those Argentinian mountains, and these little Pumanca, and uh, I probably didn't get the name right on that one, that those little, uh, those little twin propeller um, ground attack aircraft that they had, A4 Skyhawks, stuff like that, they would get lower than a snake belly in the mud, man. And they would drop these bombs right in the pickle barrel. To so much, though, that when they were actually bombing armored targets with armor-piercing bombs, uh, i.e. British warships, the bombs would go right through the ship. The bombs in like 50% of the hits, as bad as the British Navy, the British Navy came out of that war with a lot of black eyes. And uh, as bad as it was, um, most of the the Exocet versus HMS Sheffield gets all the credit. Ex- two Exocets hitting uh, SS Atlantic Conveyor gets all the press. But it was mostly A4s dropping 500-pound dumb bombs and scoring hits, scoring hits so low and so accurate that the bombs often went right through those aluminum hulls um, or these those aluminum superstructures, unarmored steel hulls, and never exploded. There's like a big two-foot hole in one side of the ship and a two-foot hole in the other side of the ship. That actually saved a lot of British ships because the, the Argentinian bombers were almost too good for their own good, if that makes any sense. Interesting. Yeah. Awesome. And, and that's got to make you sweat as a sailor on that boat. Right? <laughs> Bomb punching holes through it. You're like, well, dodge the bullet on that one, literally. I mean, God, God, I mean, it really sucks when the bombs do explode. That's where you get... Uh, Oh God! I'm gonna I'm gonna whiff the name of the ship now. Um, the uh, it's named after one of King Arthur's knights, the Galahad, I think it was. I'm probably getting that name wrong. Um, yeah, one of them finally did go up, and uh, yeah, that was the biggest single loss of British life. I uh, hit one of the troop ships, blew the uh, the Welsh guards, and uh, I'm pretty sure it was the Welsh guards. I blew that regiment clean out of the war, pretty much. Um, because they took so many casualties. By the time they kind of put that, that that lead battalion back together, the war was basically over. Um, I'm actually going to get that day. I think it was the Galahad. I'm actually going to look that up now. Because um, I don't want to get it wrong for our British viewers. So it's, a, it's an important thing for them. It's like the USS Ben Franklin for us. Or almost like the Arizona. Um, the Arizona is more like the hood, I guess. But uh, yeah, let me make sure I got that. Ain't it? 
Um, but anyway, guys, I keep going. Um, yeah. So long story short, take your first shot. We're going to be, uh, <laughs> we're going to be running some Falklands later today. Very cool. Can't wait. All right. So, uh, for me, uh, last Friday night, I did a, uh, re rebattle recreation of Gettysburg and, um, did not go so well for the union. Uh, they kind of got their asses handed to them in day two. Um, Dope. yeah, it, it's tough. I, you know, um, playing on a video game, obviously there's going to be obviously some differences, you know, simulation. It's not really a video game. You know, it's really a simulation. It's, it's at the general level, you know, and, um, Jim said I did pretty well day one historically. Um, day two was, you know, I just, I could not keep the units cohesive enough. Um, I fended off several assaults on uh, Little Round Top um, several times, but then I just couldn't get the guys. I guess my biggest uh, complaint with, I was using uh, Ultimate General Civil War, uh, replaying Gettysburg, and I guess my biggest, now Jim says this wasn't uncommon during this time period, but 1,900 guys routed, seriously, a whole you know, 1,900 guys all run away, you know? Um, well, yeah, panic is contagious. Either yeah. the unit's going to break or it's not. Once, it's either going to be zero or none, yeah. or a zero or all as far as when the unit breaks. Yeah, so I, I had a little trouble with that, you know. Um, but, uh, you know, it. But what really struck home outside of the command and control aspect of it is, you know, obviously you have no radios, no, you know, anything. It's, you know, messenger to messenger, right? So obviously there's those delays when you're trying to give orders. But what really struck home for me for gaming in this time period is the amount of losses of human life or, you know, soldiers. I'm just watching my battalions and, you know, brigades, the numbers just you know, rolling over as, as they get their losses on both sides. It's just, you know, it's very humbling. So, uh, if you haven't seen that video, check it out. It's up there on, um, all our channels. Um, also I'm working on a 30 minute speed painting video. I'm going to paint a battalion of union troops in 30 minutes from prime to finish, um, from the Epic battles. So that's, um, yeah, going to do that as an upcoming video. And then I'm working on another video. Uh, it's going to be the Battle of the Scales. Um, I'm going to take um, North Hag rule set, and I'm going to play it at 3 mil, 6 mil, 10 mil, 15 mil, and 28 mil to see which one is the best scale to play it in. So we know it's designed for 10 mil. Um, You're going to play North Hag in 28? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You need, well, uh, clean your driveway off. <laughs> well, don't worry. You're playing with me, by the way. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I got to take a cast of <laughs> Well, we're not going to play like a big full-on battle. We're just going to take like a troop, okay, oh, okay. or a squadron in the British Army. Um, and we're just going to do it at 3 mil, 6 mil, you know, 10, 15, 28, and uh, see how it goes. So, yeah, we're going to give it a shot. So, um I went ahead and just checked just to kind of cover my own ass. Yeah, it's RFA Sir Galahad, not HMS. Um, RFA is some kind of different um, um, 
it's like almost like the merchant marine it's like in the united states navy like uh-huh. okay it's, it's 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 you still call it uss but it's not really um uh it's not really you know part of the navy it's part of the merchant marine or something like that um but the name was sir galahad it was the round table class landing ships they're all named after um you know knights of the round table or whatever and yeah sir galahad was the one that got uh clobbered the hardest and that was that was rough so that's what happens when an a4 skyhawk sadly an american-built plane was dropping american-made 500 pound bombs right in the middle of that ship and um started a fire that um it was mostly fire uh, yeah. that killed a lot of people um the ship ended up not even sinking uh they towed it out to sea after the war and made a made a, a like a national gravesite out of it um but going back to what you were talking about, the uh, Ultimate General uh, Civil War Edition, I'm not familiar with that game, uh, but I was watching you play it quite, um, quite, uh, you know, intently. Yeah. Um, I'm not. I don't know a lot about the Civil War. In well, I'm, I'm conversant in the Civil War, but I do know Gettysburg pretty well. Uh, Kill Rangers is probably one of my favorite military novels ever written. Um. And I'm sitting there watching it going, okay, if, I'm going to see how close this game follows history. If it follows close to history on that first day, watch that road that comes down out of the um, north-northeast. That's going to be Ewell's second corps. It's going to come in about 12 p.m. So, I mean, you were fighting uh, lead two divisions first, Heath's division, later Heath, and I think it was uh, Pettigrew, mm-hmm. uh, division of um, A.P. Hill's third corps. That's the first battle that starts off against Buford's Cavalry. And I'm like, uh, Bill, watch, watch your rear. Right. Yeah, you were watch telling this. me, watch it's this, coming. watch that, it's and here coming. they come. It's coming, <laughs> and then like right on, right on time. I was like, bam! There's Ewell's first corps, or, or Ewell's second corps, the first division of his second corps. I said, oh yeah. So the game really does pay attention to to historical detail. Um, I wasn't 100 percent sure about the victory conditions. It it made you. I was asking you to hold McPherson's Ridge, Seminary Ridge, Oak Hill. The Union held none of that stuff on the first day. The only thing they managed to hold, and this was mostly th- due to confusion and Confederate orders, was uh, you know some, that northern shoulder of Cemetery Ridge. They yeah. lost the railroad cut. They lost Gettysburg Town. Um, so it felt like you really got the hell beat out of you on day one, but it was almost a perfectly historical result. Um, where you wound up was almost exactly where the Union wound up at the end of day one. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just not sure about the victory conditions because the victory conditions were asking you to hold all these other places that the union never had a chance um, to hold. Um, I didn't really see, I mean, enough of the game, I've only seen one session of it, but as far as like whether or not units break or not, the union military or the union army, the federal army, army of the Potomac in that, in that period of the war or in that period in general had a very different way of raising and maintaining regiments and thereby brigades and thereby um, uh, divisions in those days than they do today. So a unit would be raised, mostly a regiment, like from a certain part of you know of the state, and it would be like a thousand guys. A regiment back then was a thousand, and um, they would put that together, and then they would sign like two-year papers, or maybe three-year papers, or even one-year papers at the beginning of the war. They didn't know how long it was going to last, right. and that was it. That unit would get whittled down, and it would not take any more. It would not get replacements like you get, like you see in Vietnam or World War II. It would just get chopped down, chopped down, until the standing strength of the regiment could be as low as 100 guys. Um, and they would never reinforce it. And all they would do instead was raise more regiments. Mm-hmm. Um, so these big units where you're seeing like 1,900 guys break and run at once, because those unit numbers are so high. 
that's almost by default a brand new green regiment or brigade. Um, so you were, you were probably seeing very large route numbers at once just for that very reason. That actually does make sense. Um, what you might not have been seeing very much were you know regiments from the Irish Brigade or the, the Iron Brigade or some of these other units, which each regiment was already knocked down to 250 guys, but those guys are harder than coffin nails. They've been at Fredericksburg. They've been at Chancellorsville. They've been at Seven Pines. They've been at all the big, um, you know, battles so far. First, second Manassas, Antietam, for God's sake. Bloodiest single day in American history still to this day. Um, yeah. And those guys do not, do not break. They do not run. Um, but again, conversely, those are the units that are all super, super low in, in manpower strength. So, you know, the, the, the Confederates, were a little bit more modern, ironically, um, mm-hmm. in that, like the Stonewall Brigade would actually get you know reinforcements or whatever. So as they were getting reinforcements, the overall quality of the unit kind of averages down a little. But the the veterans, the NCOs, the uh, the junior officers kind of bring the new guys up to speed pretty quickly. And yeah, those units remained you know pretty intact through you know large stretches of that war. Which brings us then to casualties. I mean, good God. Gettysburg and Vicksburg, like the middle of the war, like the summer of 63, kind of finally stopped this trend. But it was kind of, you're kind of near the very end of this trend where all the general officers, all the colonels, all the flag guys, they're all basically using Napoleon as their template. Um, Napoleon was still relatively recently. It was like maybe 50 years ago. Yeah. Um, and, you know, they were using Napoleonic war- warfare. Uh, tactics, how they were using their cavalry, how they were using their infantry, how they were using the artillery. This little thing, however, had happened between Napoleon's time and the American Civil War. It's called the Industrial Revolution. And uh, train tracks everywhere and telegraph wires and units could move around a lot faster, and which means you could never get a, that real breakthrough. Because by the time you affected that breakthrough, the enemy had already brought in a second unit behind that, and a unit behind that, and a unit behind that, and a unit behind that. That's what happened at, at, at Manassas. Um, ironically, it was the uh, Confederates that made the first good use of the railroads in that war. That was uh, General Beauregard. So, yeah, you're basically like we see so often in, in too many wars. You're, you're fighting the last. You're fighting with last war's tactics with this war's technology, and uh, the, a lot of military doctrine or whatever you want to call it, trends, is sort of this this pendulum or this this balance between tactics and technology. When technology is ahead of tactics, you see these catastrophic kills, uh, kill, kill rates um, all the time. Uh, it, it never fails. I mean, you saw it in the Civil War, the first half of the Civil War, the casualty uh, percentages were absolutely through the roof. There are guys like uh, in, in the novel, uh, Fremantle, you saw Prussians, you saw French, you saw all these observers, uh, like actually, like European observers, who had just come through the Crimean War, and Crimean War was no friggin' picnic either. Um, and they're looking at these American casualty rates, especially on the Confederate side, and they're like, these people are friggin' crazy, man. Right. We thought... We had bloody battles in the, the Napoleonic days, and these people are freaking nuts. Do they not realize that no longer people are shooting musket balls at each other? They're shooting those little mini balls or mini balls, however you pronounce it, which is actually like a ballistic shot that actually hits at a much greater range, much greater rate of fire, much greater penetration. I mean, you can't fight Napoleonic tactics with these weapons when everybody has a much better rifle because we make them in these little things that we like to call factories. We have factories now. Okay. You can't fight, <laughs> you know, 
uh, the, the, the Napoleonic War, all weapons were made in you know people's barns. They were made one at a time. Every button, every coat, every bootlace, everything had to be made by hand by a guy with a hammer, you know, next to his cow in a barn somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, 1850s, we see the you know the Industrial Revolution, and then that sheer amount of you know killing infrastructure gets put into the it gets put into the armies, especially on the federal side. I mean, by the end of the war, they had repeating rifles, they had you know revolvers, they had freaking machine guns they had the first Gatlin guns or whatever you, you can't do it and that's why by the end of the civil war like the siege of petersburg you see like these reverse trench lines with you know, the crenulated uh you know trench line and, and you look at photographs of the late part of the civil war you swear you're looking at a battlefield from world war one so the first half of the civil war is looking very much backwards toward the napoleonic wars and the second half of the civil war becomes eerily eerily similar to world war one right um Mass artillery barrages, these these thick trench lines, Battle of the Crater. I mean, that happened in uh, Belgium. They did that that exact same plan. They dug a tunnel, they packed it full of explosives, they blew a huge hole, and they tried to charge through. It didn't work at Petersburg. It didn't work in the, I think it was near Passchendaele, um, fifty years later. So, yeah, that's one of the reasons that you see those those absolutely absurd uh, casualty rates in the Civil War. Yeah, it's crazy. So it just uh, it just blows my mind when you think about you know what those guys went through, and they were still coming on lines and all that stuff. You know, not as you know uh, direct as like in this uh, Napoleonic Wars, but you know, at certain points they were um, close. Yeah, especially in the earlier battles. Close. Yeah. So uh, I don't know what you think of the movie Gettysburg, Jim, but uh, you know they do show at parts of the battle. I think when they were they were trying to take um, where were they trying to go up Seminary Ridge or somewhere and they were all online you know going yep. get online and here we go and you know you got guys with rifled bullets now you know it's not a, a musket ball so yeah that takes some guts all right so let's catch up on a little bit of news real quick and then uh, we're going to talk about I got a great topic for you guys today. I didn't put out a running order today because I want to get your initial reaction to this one. So in the news, uh, our friend Brad and Bob Mack have another Kickstarter going right now uh, for their next 3D printed campaign. Uh, It is the uh, British, right, Uh, if I remember correctly, uh, the British Army on the Rhine. Uh, So they have created a new Kickstarter campaign for that. And... um, it is going right now, um, so I think I will back that. You know what I found out as I go sidetrack here in the news? Um, I got a lot of 3D printed stuff I have yet to even really open and try, so I really got to work on that. Uh, but, yeah, they got a really nice uh, 3D printed uh, campaign going on for British Army on the Rhine. Um, you know, they've got um, – I'm pulling it up here as we speak – and let's see why it, my Kickstarter page keeps coming up in French. I have no idea. Um, it's really weird. Anyways, let me look at the models here. Oops. Hey, Marty, you're going to tell me how you did that to him. That's yeah, funny. Right. So you got the Chieftain Mark VI. You got an FD 432. You got the Scorpions, Abbots, uh, and a Chieftain Mark X with Stillabrew armor um, are the base models in the pledge. So... And these can be printed at uh, 15 mil, 20 mil, and 28 mil. Um, so they look pretty good. So, yeah, there's stowage and everything you can get depending on your pledge level. 
There's they've got a painting guide they've created for this. Um, so if you're interested in getting some more models for, you know, Battle Group North Hag, uh, here's your chance. Um, so yeah, um, so yeah. Other than that, um, there's some Vitrix. Good old Vitrix has got some uh, Romans out, late Romans, I believe. Um, so you might want to take a look at those. And then uh, Osprey Publishing has Hungarian soldiers versus Soviet soldiers um, that clashed during the Barbarossa campaign, Jim. Uh, it's a, a book uh, that compares those fighting forces. Um, so you got that too. In 1941, the Hungarians were probably the best Axis force, the best Axis allies the Germans had. Really? Um, at least one part of it. They had something, they might talk about this in, in, in the book that you're referring to or the miniatures that you're referring to. They had something called the, the Hungarian Rapid Corps. Um, it wasn't exactly like a Panzer division, but it had a lot of light tanks, a lot of armored cars, a lot of, you know, trucks. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was doing pretty good. Uh, they kind of got the short end of the stick. Uh, a lot of the German generals kind of used them almost as like expendable. You know, we don't want like that's that's mostly in the southern part of Russia. So going into or the southern part of the Soviet Union. So a lot of the battles in the Ukraine, at least in that first year of 41, um, that first, you know, that first Barbarossa slash typhoon phase of the of the Eastern Front. Yeah. Um, so that's uh, von Rundstedt's uh, army group. No, I'm sorry. That's not that's not true. That's uh, von Bock's army group. It is von Rundstedt. Sorry. More importantly, it's like a shoulder to shoulder along with Kleist's uh, Panzer uh, Panzer Group, and uh, these guys were the, the elite of the elite of the elite. These were like all the probably the best, or at least most of the some of the best German Panzer divisions. And the Germans did not want to throw these guys, you know, under the bus if they could possibly help it. So there are a couple of examples where they send in the Hungarian fast score to kind of trip all the Soviet defenses. They kind of send them in first. And then once, almost like reconnaissance by combat, and then once the Soviets had kind of revealed themselves, launched all their counterattacks, revealed all their positions, burned through their first big stocks of um, ammunition and supplies, then the Germans would go in from the other side and outflank them and, you know, hit them from the, the side or the rear. And uh, the, that Hungarian rapid corps got chewed up down to a nub really fast. So it's it's interesting and accurate that they kind of put them in there in the 41 campaign because mm-hmm. by the time you get to the 42 campaign i mean the hungarian army is still obviously in um russia through that pretty much the rest of the war um at least until late 44 but um yeah they after after the summer and fall of 41 uh at least the hungarian rapid corps that there wasn't a whole lot left of them yeah so yep they have a new book coming out to compare those uh infantry types or soldiers um, during the early stages of Barbarossa. Um, so if you're looking for some good historical reference material, there is another great title from Osprey Publishing. Uh, Vitrix, again, is publishing or creating uh, 12 millimeter Soviet uh, World War II infantry and command uh, miniatures. Um, I think just in time for battle group uh, Stalingrad uh, is coming out. Uh, here shortly as well. So I know pre-orders are going up for that uh, campaign supplement for the Battle Group uh, game, uh, which is a uh, recommend from Jim. Um, so you might want to take a look at those uh, renders as they come out. And then, of course, our friends over at Empress Miniatures are still producing uh, a Arvin uh, Miniatures uh, for Vietnam, looking really good. And they actually based a couple of them off of real-life photos. Um, you know, combat photos. So 
I mean, very historically accurate. Looks really good. There's an RTO here, um, you know, looking really good. And then, last but not least, Rubicon Models is producing some more high-quality uh, plastic kits. Uh, they're showing off two different sprues this week. Uh, both for the M151A1, or what we commonly call the Jeep. Um, there's the standard Jeep, uh, you know, just a standard, you know, transport. And then the classic Jeep with the M40-106 recoilless rifle. So if you've ever seen pictures of the Jeep with that big old gun on the back of it, you know, the gun's longer than Always the Jeep. sexy. So, you know, that's out there too. Now, last but not least, uh, I want to give a shout-out to Austin Miniatures. Uh, Chris, our uh, Facebook uh, social director, uh, has been posting like a madman. And um, he posted some things about these Austin Miniatures. They're 28-millimeter U.S. Marine Grenadier and NCO. I think the sculpts are really good, but I, I did post on there. I did comment, and I thought the heads were a little bit out of proportion. They seem really, really large. So I'm hoping... Uh, they do fix that. So I don't know if any of you guys have seen those pictures, but uh, they, other than that, they, they you beat me to it. <laughs> What's that? Modeled after Marty. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, um, take a look at them. Uh, they're very nicely sculpted. Just, um, I, yeah, it just, it, the, go ahead. Uh, are those 28 mil bill? I thought that was a, wasn't Austin doing the fifty four? No, no, these Didn't are twenty eight the really mil. big ones. Twenty eight mil. Oh, so somebody just made some fifty four ones that were pretty good looking. I'm like, hey, I let, and I'm like, oh, fifty four. Yeah, no, no, I, no, these are twenty eight twenty eight mil ones. So, yeah, and then uh, last but not least, Miniature Building Authority, our friends Kirk, uh, he's got some stuff posted about getting back into conventions, and I believe they have a Kickstarter going or coming up. So. I have to reach out to them. I haven't talked to them in a while. So uh, they always have very high-quality uh, terrain and stuff. So that's pretty much the news for this show. I've got to do a new uh, intro-outro for the news um, since we lost our news guy. But anyways, all right, here we go. Are you guys ready? Put on your thinking caps. Bring it. So uh, here – You didn't say there was going to be thinking at all. <laughs> so – what is the SITREP Podcast Foundation? What what are we what were we founded on? Technology. No. Modern uh, we working. We were originally right? founded modern. on uh, Okay. On, on modern, yeah, modern uh, right. modern conflicts. So, are you ready? Here we go. So, we're talking modern or ultra modern or near modern or future modern, whatever you want to call it. You ready? But it is a real topic. Space Force, 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 Force. Oh, no. <laughs> How do we play Space Force? Jim, you well, know... Uh, this Space Marines. Wait, what? Uh, what? <laughs> Wrong game. Wrong game. Wrong world. Oh, okay. No. We're going to have to bleep that out along with the rest of the world. <laughs> But I just saying. So I, I thought about this. Uh, two things made me think about this topic. One is that uh, a friend of this podcast did a really nice video um, review of Dark Star, and he showed off merch and you know everything like that. But he did a really nice uh, review of Dark Star, which got me to thinking: How 
while we know Dark Star set way in the future, but it's you know we're we're now at the threshold of military in space because if you look behind, keep your politics out of this, guys. If you look behind the standing president when he was giving a briefing the other day, and you saw all the flags of all the branches of the military, what was up there? Anyone? Oh yeah, that was one decision yeah. that uh, that the, that, the, that Biden has made. They're they're not getting rid of Space Force. Yeah. So the official Space Force flag was up there with the Marines, the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, and the Coast Guard. So, it, I mean, it's an official branch. So it opens yep. up the world of how do we game Space Force, space combat? Does that mean I can break out my X-Wing? <laughs> the, only, the only issue, again, I'll, I'll definitely keep the politics out, but the only issue I had – and by I mean keep the politics out of it, I disagreed with the idea of founding the Space Force, and I disagree with the current administration that we're keeping it. So I disagree with both, you know, left and right as far as the politics of it go. Right. Um, do we need more capability in space? I mean, jokes about Dark Star and 40K and all that stuff are fine, and you know, but as far as like what's actually going on in space right now, absolutely, we already have a Space Force. It's called the United States Air Force. Mm-hmm. They've been in space since yep. the 60s. Um, and when you create a new branch of the service, now you have a new seat on the Joint Chiefs. Now you have a new government department. You have an extra trillion dollars in you know every ten years, uh, you know, kind of going out just to maintain the fact that this is a new space force for really no additional capability. Keep it within an existing force, and uh, I mean, there you would you know have it. I mean, now does more money might you know. I don't think the Department of Defense needs more money. I think the money that goes into the Department of Defense needs to be much better organized um, because there's a lot of waste in there. A lot of defense contractors' kids are going to college on our dime and and things like that. Oh, come on. Um, So so more money needs to go to uh, our capabilities in space, but that just should be, you know, more tightly organized appropriation going into into the Air Force. But that's just... How would we game it? Well, it depends on like our uh, our era. Like, what 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 do we mean when we're talking about military capability in space right now? We're talking about mostly surveillance satellites. Mm-hmm. Um, there are all kinds of treaties that are preventing us from weaponizing space, as far as actually putting missiles into um, or, or particle beams or whatever the hell, rail guns. By the way, the Navy's finally canceled that boondoggle uh, railgun experiment. That can Chris, um, Chris and I were actually just talking about that, and like, you know, I wonder how dead that really is. You know, that's sitting in you know some shed in Raytheon, and dudes are going out there to work on it on their lunch hour or something. On their lunch hour. Right? <laughs> um, I mean, it's been superseded. It took so long in development. The Navy has better missiles that can do the job ten times better than than a railgun does. Uh, is railgun technology gone for good? No, because sooner or later, you're going to need to put that kind of stuff on. A uh, on a satellite, yeah, or a missile that can do the same thing on a satellite that you know draws a line of sight. So space combat's got a whole bunch of stuff to it, you know, the, the lines of sight and you know a relativistic light delay, sensor delay. You see a lot of this stuff in the Expanse. If you get into that show, which I finally watched, people were literally hounding me across the internet. You got to watch the the Expanse because you know Dark Star. No, Dark Star is something like the Expanse, but anyway. <laughs> um, yeah, we're, we're talking about uh, surveillance satellites and then counter surveillance. You know, the idea that maybe you can shoot down 
another satellite with a satellite. That's not really required. The F-15 has been able to carry the ASAT missile since the late 70s. It's a, you know, the F-15 can fly just high enough um, to where it can launch this missile that then goes the rest of the way up into low orbit. You guys got to remember, I mean, you guys probably know this, but our audience got to remember, I mean, most of what we consider space, where most of the satellites are, where the space shuttle used to fly, where the International Space Station is, is really low altitude. Well, you know, I almost wouldn't call it space at all. I mean, it's it's right on that border uh, mm-hmm. between, you know, not that there really is a border, but it's right in that area where it's the very, very upper limits of Earth's atmosphere and then just beyond it. Um, yeah, so, they're yeah, very, very low weapons altitude. can totally reach that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, speaking of that, this history today, Richard Branson uh, and his crew got to space and landed. Yeah, that, yeah, he uh, did his launch today. Yep. Oh, really? Okay, cool. Yep. Okay. I mean, awesome. I I understand that's the reality of what's going on today, but let's take the hypotheticals and and the okay. what ifs. You know, hey, before we get into the hypothetical, Bill, mm-hmm. I I, I want to make a counterpoint to um. To the, to the thing about, oh, you know, we should keep it in the Air Force. You know, if we give the Air Force, first off, they've already got their four-star hotels, I mean, excuse me, barracks and everything. Um, it, right now, they don't want to support the ground pounders as it is. You give them outer space, we're lucky to see them on Earth. You know what I mean? They've had outer space since the 70s, though, for the yeah. 70s, really. But they, they also share that, with, you know, I mean, that that's kind of under NASA, and, and that's shared amongst the different forces. It's just the Air Force doesn't do a good job with their money and maintaining a balance of what their responsibilities are, right? I would agree with that, uh, at least, you know, at least halfway. Um, the Air Force, we were talking about the A-10 before. I mean, the A-10 would have been deader than fried chicken by 1985 if it hadn't been for... Yeah, they've uh, tried to kill it a half dozen times. Yeah, because right. they don't want it. They, they, don't, they don't want to, uh, or at least the generals don't. The pilots love the A-10, but the generals, you know, the, they used to call it the fighter mafia, at least in the 80s. I don't know if they still call it now. But most of the generals that were running the Air Force at those times were former fighter pilots. And then this this big turkey called the Warthog or the Thunderbolt Two, if you want to get technical, you know, comes along. They're like, we don't want that. I mean, we don't. We're not supposed to be flying around in the mud, you know, supporting ground pounders. That's why you guys have the Apache, and the Air Force doesn't control the Apache squadrons. That's strictly Army. Mm-hmm. And then they get this whole tugging match about, well, you guys can support yourselves with the Apache. Look at how many billions of dollars you know you guys get for the Apache or whatever. Why are we bothering to support ground missions when our mission is to keep the Red Air Force off your ass? You know, so, yeah, we want more. Yeah, the Air Force wastes a lot of money. Hello, F-22 Raptor. What the hell is that thing ever fought besides friggin' Decepticons? <laughs> Come on, man. That's what the JSF-35 uh, is for, which isn't, you know, which, yeah, $1.7 trillion in development, but everyone can use it. The British get to have a Navy again. Uh, a real navy, a blue water air strike aircraft carrier, fixed wing air superiority supersonic navy again, um, because of you know the the, the Queen Elizabeth, the, the, I think it's Queen Elizabeth and the uh, Prince of Wales. We basically have two more carriers in our fleet now because we're all part of NATO and we're all friends. 
But that's two less either Nimitz or Gerald Ford class carriers we have to deploy to the uh, North Atlantic now to keep the Russians bottled up in the Barrens because, you know, we basically gave them the planes they need to so that their carriers will work. There's no other fighter plane that, that can uh, – they can fly off of those two British carriers. Right. A little bit of a tangent there, but the, the JSF-35 is supposed to be the next big thing. Why, you know, again, we'll keep the politics out of it, but Obama shut down the F-22 Raptor. Correct decision. Trump brought it back. The wrong decision. And I, I don't, I haven't heard that they're going to cancel it again. Um, I've seen the F-22 fly at air shows. It's very impressive. It's very pretty. You can do all kinds of fun little tricks. Uh, hooray, hooray. But, um, Dude, that's what the JSO 35 is for. Take that money out of the F-22 and put it into increased, uh, you know, space capability. Will we eventually need what I've called it in some fiction? I used to write United States, United Space, United States Aerospace Corps, or United States, you know, Aerospace Force, or something like that, where you're actually into space now. Yeah, we'll get there eventually, you know. But do we need it now? Uh, I don't think we need it yet. Maybe in that hypothetical stage, Bill is trying to get us to. Yeah. Well, you know, yeah, but you, to, to your point, Jim, with uh, you know, if, if we are going to need that in the future, we have to start developing it now because that's how our technology works. You know, yeah, like the, the, the technology has been building it, in the uh, under the ages of the Air Force. Yeah. You know, the Air so Force officially used that. Absolutely, we were building an Air Force all through the 30s and 40s. We called it the United States Army Air Corps and the mm-hmm. United States Air Force, and then we finally said, okay, you know what? We won World War II. We had a few aircraft in World War II, if memory serves. Just, just, just a couple. Couple, yeah. Yeah, hundred thousand. Um, but once we had a couple hundred thousand, then it wasn't until 1947, 49 that 47. the U.S. Air Force, 47, the U.S. Air Force became a thing. I think we need to follow that model a little bit more with uh, any kind of space force. Let's wait until the first big you know, really need comes. Meanwhile, yeah, to, to everyone else's point, yes, keep developing it, keep expanding it. But just having a department, putting that plaque on the wall, you know, I, I had the same issue when we came out with Homeland Security after 9-11. We have the DIA, we have the NSA, we have the CIA. Yeah, there were problems there. Fucking fix the problems. Right. Don't just make up a whole new division of the government. Because putting that plaque on the wall costs the American taxpayer a trillion dollars per decade. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, well, I mean, and it adds a layer of bureaucracy to everything. Yeah, Which, now everything's even more disorganized. I mean, that's another. That's what uh, we do. Yeah, well, that's what happens. Nine <laughs> Eleven. Yeah. Everyone had the everyone had the intelligence. Nobody was talking to each other. Grenada. I mean. Uh, the, everyone's special forces were there. None of them were talking to each other because we didn't have a joint uh, joint special forces command yet. Right. You know, we have all these great little organizations, and we don't organize them well enough. Yeah. Well, Either Panama, organize them better or keep fewer organizations. Yeah, you know, we we still had that issue in Panama. You know, and then we were the the way that we used our troops. You know, because we wanted everyone to get in there and get their piece of the pie. But why why do you have seals trying to take down uh, airfields? Yeah. We have rangers that do that for a living. Exactly. <laughs> but I, this is going way back in the history, like before Ariskany was Ariskany. This is way back. Took a semi-serious stab at what um, I think I said it in like 2093, which nowadays seems a little a little too optimistic. How about we push it into the early 22nd century? What like mankind's first war on Mars would actually look like? Um, 
did a ton of research on how life on Mars would actually work. I mean, life like our colonies and stuff like that, how you would, you know, how the orbital windows work, how often you can actually send ships to Mars, because it's not just, you know, hitting the gas on a big rocket. You have to wait till the planets are in certain positions. And that's going to affect the pace of a campaign that goes on there. And you can only send things. The window to Mars only opens every like 18 to 24 months. Um, so basically only only every two years are you going to get some kind of like supply or reinforcement. Whatever you get, you have to make last until then. Mm-hmm. How long it takes to get there, how long it takes to get, you know, orders back from Earth or whatever. And So, Jim, is going to go back to what you were talking about before where, you know, wars were pretty much only fought during the summer? A little, yeah. It's got something to do with the, 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 I mean, who knows what future technology is going to be as far as like interplanetary space travel, but with the kind of technology we have now and are likely to have in the next 50 to eight, you know, 50, 100 years or whatever, um, it's, it's not like a straight line. You don't just take off from earth and then fly to Mars. You have, it's almost like changing lanes on a highway. That's in a big curve. Um, and that can only be kind of executed even close to efficiently when the planets are in certain positions and it happens. I mean, Mars revolves around the sun, like every 640 days. Of course we go around the sun every 365 days. So there's a certain uh, synchronicity that only takes place. I think it's every like 22 months or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, And then within those 22 months, there's like, like a four month window. You send all your stuff during those four months and then you're, you're kind of stuck on your own for about the next 18 months until the next 22 month cycle, something like that. Yeah. Um, I can't remember all the details. Uh, I did a lot of reading by uh, Robert Zubrin. He's kind of an outcast of the whole uh, um, uh, NASA community right now, which is not really fair. Um, he's got a lot of great ideas. He doesn't really agree with a lot of the, you know, the party line that comes out of NASA, at least the last I heard. Um, but we, we, we tried. Uh, we we kind of said, okay, United States is still going to be around. China is going to be the new big bad or whatever. China is the... Uh, I think we called it like the Pan-Asian Union or something. It's like China basically amalgamated a bunch of other countries together. There's like this new like East Asian super state. And they now have colonies on the Mars. Like the, the, the corporations, um, this is way before SpaceX and, and Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk and all that stuff. But we sort of envisioned that. Or, you know, and then of course the Europeans had like a, like a pan-European space agency or something. So we had factions. We had, okay how vehicles can actually work on Mars, basically rovers, but they're armed, um, drones, autonomous technology, and um, aircraft. And aircraft are tough on Mars because the atmosphere is like 2% the, the density that our atmosphere is. Infantry combat is almost non-existent because, you know, the, the conditions on Mars are not, you know, you can't just walk out and fight in a trench in, in Mars, on Mars like you can here on Earth. Um I'd have to definitely take another look at it, but we, we've had sort of have taken a stab at it. Um, and, and it wasn't like Star Wars with lightsabers and Jedi. It was almost like the kind of stuff you might see in the Expanse nowadays. Like this is a semi-realistic look on what on what it might actually sort of be like. Well, with the way things are going today, I almost wonder if uh, you know, like government response. Uh, and their actions you know, would dictate the fact that and if you uh, are 
up there uh, is there going to be like a territorial battle? And that's when the government. Hey, Marty, you're breaking up. We can't hear a word you're saying. Sorry, buddy. You're coming in broken and stupid. Over. Damn it. <laughs> I think I caught enough of what he was saying to sort of, I mean, correct me if this isn't what you were saying, but there's going to be certain stages of colonization and the warfare that comes with colonization. And the pattern that most people tend to guess, I mean, history tends to repeat itself. So if we look at like the colonization of the new world from Europe as sort of an example, there's going to be the uh, the colonial warfare period. This is when you had British colonies, French, Dutch, uh, Portuguese, um, Spanish colonies, mostly in the Caribbean, and those colonies would fight each other. Um, when the big nations back in Europe didn't want to have a huge war on their own countries or whatever, uh, with all the collateral damage that comes with that, they would have these little small wars off in the colonies. Um, you're on your own. There is very little in way of support from home. Uh, the level of uh, autonomy in your command is through the roof because just like nowadays or just like you know, in, with interest, interest planetary or God forbid interstellar um, sort of colonization, you're not going to be able to get a message very quickly. You're going to have to make your own decisions. Um, just like back then, it took two months to get, you know, every teacup, every bullet, everything had to be brought in from God knows where. Mm-hmm. You had to be self-reliant. And a lot of the wars would be based very, this is the better thing that Zubrin would bring up is, you know, never mind, okay, we're going to have a tank of gas on our rocket. We're going to spend half the tank of gas to get to Mars and send the other half, save the other half of the tank of gas to get back home again. Hell no. It's, that's absolutely not how it's going to work. Um, any civilian, military, you know, warfare, peace, industrial, doesn't matter. Any kind of colonization that's going to happen on really the moon or especially Mars is going to be dependent on what you can make there yourself. Fortunately, there are certain kind of fuels that you can make on Mars based on the chemistry that's already there. It's actually pretty simple, or it sounds pretty simple. No one's actually built the technology yet, but it's it's like sixth grade chemistry. It's not that big a deal. You just have to you know spend some money at it. Um, but the, 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 the pattern was you're going to have that period, and then you're eventually going to have the period that you kind of see, again, I keep mentioning the expanse, um, where the colonies, say, become strong enough, self-reliant enough, where they say, hey, mother country, how about you push it somewhere where the sun don't shine, we're now going to be our own power. There's going to be a big revolutionary war sort of thing, and now you have the like the, we see in the expanse we have a martian congressional republic or whatever and now the that that whole dynamic of how the wars are going to work are going to be very different it's going to be earth versus mars as opposed to american colonies on mars versus european colonies on mars versus chinese colonies on mars versus corporate colonies on mars fighting each other over earth-based bullshit or whatever we're going to go through that period and then we're going to go to you know, a different period, maybe another hundred years down the road. So we're talking about like early 23rd century now where it's, uh, you know, the colonies have become big enough where now the colonies are now their own thing. And now it really becomes an interplanetary model. I mean, we're way down the road now. Yeah. Um, but uh, again, just going by what's happened before in history, that tends to be the model. You know, well, a, a couple of things on, on all this stuff. I, I don't disagree with you, Jim. One of the things you're talking about the technology, you know, look where, look how far technology has come in the last hundred years, right? And we don't know there could be something that is invented, you know, 10, 15 years from now. 
that can really make a difference in a lot of that stuff. Um, with the uh, Space Force, whether you believe in the UFOs, you don't. It's kind of weird that all the countries were, you know, changed their tune on, oh, there's nothing to, well, there's something about that. Um, it, it's almost like, I don't know, uh, like, <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, some other, you know, some other world doctor next month and we already knew about it. Um, well, if that's the case, the yeah. game's already over. Yeah, in order for any, in order for any, in order for this is way off topic now. But if, in, if any actual other, uh, what's number one? No, <laughs> it's just it's not. Um, but just a flight of fancy for a second. If absolutely anything could ever reach here from another intelligent civilization somewhere, they've already broken um, all the rules of relativity which means they've solved the theory of everything. They've gotten quantum mechanics and uh, relativity to work together because that's how the graviton works. And, and that's the only way you're ever going to travel faster than light. If they showed up and they weren't friendly, hang it up, dude. I mean, it's like a, an Abrams tank running over an anthill. The amount of technology and the amount of scientific breakthrough that has to happen for to, to actually re allow realistic travel between star systems is... I hate to use the term, but it's it's a quantum leap. It's not even like, oh, we're going to discover this in the next, you know, 100 years. No, we're going to discover it in the next 1,000 years, if ever. The light barrier is not like the sound barrier. It's not just put Chuck Yeager in a bigger plane and have him go faster. You are breaking the most fundamental physical laws in the universe, period. Yeah. I mean, I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm just saying, you know, there's enough stuff, there's been enough evidence that just, and I think we'd be very self-centered to think we're the only ones in the world or in the in the universe. Um, well, to dial that back a little bit, though, may, maybe that's not alien. Maybe that's uh, another uh, another uh, country technology that uh, they've developed some super cool crap that is still terrestrial found. You know, it's, it's from Earth, and they've been test driving some stuff. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, a lot of these things that people are seeing look a lot like a stealth fighter. Or, I'm sorry, a lot like a stealth bomber. It's a big triangle flying around in the sky in a way that we can't, you know, we've never seen before. Yeah. yeah. And no, I don't think that we're the only people, you know, running around out there, but I don't want to completely derail the, the, the topic into yeah. the Fermi paradox and um, everything and else. All like I'm getting at is, for one, you know, look at where we've gone in the last hundred years. Doesn't mean that you know some of those those hard constant variables are gonna are not gonna be changed, right? Um, well, yeah, but I would also add that history doesn't always travel in a straight line. Neither does technology. We've yeah. gone we, the, like like the argument I always use is look at the 20th century. Everything that was actually invented was invented in the first half of the 20th century. Second half of the 20th century, we invented exactly squat. All we did was improve upon everything that was invented in the first half of the 20th century, the telephone, the aircraft, the computer, um, the microprocessor. I mean, all that was invented before 1950. Ever since then, it's always been, well, we're going to make it better. We're going to make it easier to fit in your pocket so you can look at porn on the bus. I mean, I'm not impressed with the, the, the rate of technology in the past 
you know, um, 50 years. Um, if you want to go further back, the Greeks knew how big the world was and that they were, in fact, that the earth was round in the fourth century BC. We only discovered it in the Renaissance 2,000 friggin' years later. So, I mean, technology and history take huge step backwards. Um, one good EMP bomb over the United States, and we are back in the 1940s in literally a microsecond. And it's going to take us decades to, to climb out of that again. We get another big uh, sunstorm event like we saw in 1859. It didn't matter in 1859. It didn't blow up anything. If that thing hit us again today, that's it. It's game over. Um, you know, most cities are starving to death within four days. Um that's just fact. And it, as far as when this is going to happen, it's not a matter of, of if, it's when. It's going to happen. So, I mean, yeah, we, we can sort of plot the trajectory of, of advancement and technology over the last 100 years. I would say look at the last 2,000 years. Look at the last 3,000 years. There are big dips. Uh, I'm hoping that we're not going to see a big dip anytime soon, but we, we can't kind of discount that either. Yeah. Politics aside, no big dips went up in our uh, future. <laughs> You know, but to bring it back, uh, you know, kind of, kind of on topic, you know, how how would we fight slash defend space and you know, uh, moon or Mars? You know, if we if we have colonized uh, other uh, celestial bodies, you know, like the moon or Mars, you know, uh, you know, how how do we, uh, you know, to bring it to a really infantry level how do we hold the ground that we have um it's, it's going to be the, the two basic models are like modern naval combat because in space there's nowhere to hide um everything is very 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 visible in space we take pictures of things nine and a half billion light years away um the fact that you're going to be able to, that anyone's going to be able to hide a, a drop ship or whatever you want to call it um, you know, behind one of Mars's moons is just, you know, it's, it's not really going to happen. So you're, it's going to be a lot of kind of like naval warfare is today. You can't hide an aircraft carrier. Too many people have satellites. Too many people have. So it's going to be electronics, electronics, electronics. And then, and at least in that first stage, it's also going to, uh, one big factor that we're going to have to look at is going to be that old colonial model. You know, you get out of your ship and like, you know, we saw with that silly Matt Damon movie. I mean, you are on your own. Mm -hmm. um, so what weapons can you build there? So let's, let, let, let's take Mars, for example. Mars is never going to be terraformed. I'm very sorry to anyone who thinks Mars is ever going to be terraformed. It's never going to be terraformed. <laughs> you cannot terraform Mars. The reason it doesn't have a spinning uh, iron core, therefore it has no magnetic field. So navigation is going to be a little difficult on Mars as far as your vehicles, your infantry, and stuff like that. It basically doesn't have really a north pole. And what that also means is that you have no protection there's no Van Buren belt or Van Allen belt. Sorry. Um, well, I screwed that up, didn't I? Um, there's no big like, radi uh, radiation protection belts. There's no ozone layer. There's no magnetic field. So you step out on Mars, and unless your stuff is EMP hardened, because you're basically getting nuked 24-7. Um, ironically, a day on Mars is almost exactly 24 hours. Um, just a coincidence. But, uh, yeah, it's... <sighs> So anything's going to have to be super hardened. How much of it's going to be underground? It also depends on, on – it's almost like it's tough to, to kind of make predictions. You almost have to set a premise. Where are we on Mars? 
Are we near the poles? What's the resource? Why are we there? So that's what people are going to fight over. Um, are we up near the poles where most of the, where we think most of the water is? How do you power things? One of the big things Zuber needs to talk about was geothermal vents. So there are going to be certain areas of Mars that are more volcanically active or formerly volcanically active. It's not really volcanically active anymore. Again, no spinning iron core in the, in the center of the planet. But that's going to be one of your main sources of power uh, predicted is, is geothermal energy. Um, you dig down, you find that water, and that water is still relatively hot. So you can use that for steam, and you, we're back to the steam age. Steam, the steampunk crowd may have had it right all along. Um, you know, you're going to be back to uh, steam-powered, you know, uh, processes for, you know, growing food, purifying water. Uh, you can use the materials that are on that regolith, that actually that that red sandy iron oxide Mars soil there. You make, you, make, you make bricks out of that. That's what most of the buildings are going to be. Forget about these big, super glassy, super white domes that you see in all the movies. It's going to look like a dirty igloo is what most of what Mars is going to look like for the first hundred years. Where we are, why we're there, that's going to depend on how close the different factions are and what they're going to fight over and how close they are and how real estate based, you know, you were talking about hold your ground. That's going to determine a lot of, you know, how those wars were fought. I think yeah, right now the question is a little think, too open-ended, but people have taken stabs at it. Well, and, you know, the, to your point that, uh, you know, we're not building these big glass houses there. Uh, you know, it it also, I think the uh, military objective, if you will, uh, do you want to take over that place or do you want to destroy it? Because that is two vastly different oh, yeah. operations. Mm-hmm. Because if if you want to, if you want to take over that, then you don't want to destroy it. You want to do as minimal damage as possible, and and that gets to be a tricky thing because it's really easy to blow hole. shit up. You can't yeah. put a single hole in whatever. Yeah, they say a lot of that stuff's going to be underground at first because again, one of the big things you have to watch out for on Mars is the solar radiation. Solar radiation is absurdly uh, strong on Mars because it has zero in the way of a, of a magnetic field. Yeah. So yeah, you can put all the air and water. People talk about terraforming Mars. You can put all the air and water you want on Mars. There's a reason Mars doesn't have air and water anymore. It used to. The evidence is there. We photographed Mars almost as intensely as we photographed Earth at this point. It is. It was there, and it's now gone. And so that's why I'm saying you're not going to be able to terraform Mars. Um not to be a big pessimist or whatever, but that's going to affect where the colonies, cities, factories, what, you know, whatever it is you're going to be fighting over, where they are and what they're doing there. They say the first big wave is going to be deep underground, like that huge valley. It's like 50 times longer than the Grand Canyon or whatever, biggest valley in the solar system. Um, Valles Marineris, I think they call it. Um, tunneling into the, into the walls of that doming over certain parts of that but again the dome isn't really going to help you depending on where uh materials technology goes in the future right um that definitely could change in the next you know 10 20 50 100 years um whatever you build is going to have to deal with that massive amounts of solar radiation well jim you're from florida you guys have uh all that uh tent for your car windows down there yeah, we spend all day indoors. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't spent outside my house in like four days. Man. I'm serious. I'm, I'm going to finally have to take the trash out after this podcast. I'm going to be like, oh, God, the sun. <laughs> Trust me, in Florida, you know who, 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 the, who the tourists in Florida are. The people actually on the beach and coming in from the beach, they're all burnt red. Yeah, yep. those are the tourists. Yep. 
the people who live here are the pale people sitting in the, <laughs> under the under the you know an air conditioned building saying, "Hey, welcome to skin cancer." The rest of us are inside. That's why um, when I was down in the Keys, I was wondering why everybody was wearing those you know long sleeve fishing shirts. You know, the really thin. It's, I don't know if it's nylon or whatever it is. I'm like, why are you wearing this? And then I was out for a few days, and I totally understood. So, and I picked up myself some shirts because you you learn real quick. Yeah, the sun is a thing down here. I mean, I'm yeah. sure people who live in Arizona are probably laughing at us right now. But <laughs> yeah. All right, guys. So there you go. Some food for thought. How do we play Space Force in I modern Morgan? What, Chris? I say we start with X Wing. Boo. That's not modern warfare. You just want to play. You just want to play X Wing because they're already painted. Yes. No. <laughs> Nailed it. <laughs> no. And I already have them. Yes. No. They're not cheap. It's a future. It's a long, long time ago. I I would like to see Dark Star brought closer. You know, it, what would be. Jim, what generation would you say the ships are in Dark Star? You know, like, you know, you have first generation like the Enterprise, you know, I'm, as an air carrier, the first Enterprise from World War II. Then you got up to what, the oh, Nimitz God. class and the Eisenhower class and was it the, what's the most Dark recent class? Dark Star has a very specific history written into its backstory that uh-huh. makes it almost more like space opera yeah. than, uh, than science fiction. Um so, number one, no aliens. Right. Because no aliens. <laughs> because Fermi Paradox, because Great Filter, because all these other – the Drake equation has been disproven decades ago. Um, no aliens. I'm not saying they're not out there. Just we'll never see them. So, hang it up. Um, number one. Number two, uh, we want to fast and light travel. So, we, I don't know. I'm kind of getting off the topic here. Um, the, the, the game – the game was, was written first, and then the premise was built after the game, which mm-hmm. is actually opposite, which is why most science fiction games are garbage, or at least very, very badly flawed. Because most science fiction games, not all, there are some big ones I could mention that don't fall into this trap. Most science fiction games are based on a pre-existing IP, movies, TV shows, comic books, something like that. Yeah. And that premise was built to be a fun TV show, movie, comic book, or whatever. Then you try to build a game around that, and it doesn't work because things like warp drive uh, in Star Trek, or the Force in Star Wars, or the wave motion gun in Space Battleship Yamato are just way too powerful, and it blows up the system. Yeah, Dark Star was written in reverse. Um, we came up with the game first, and then the the, the 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 premise came afterwards. And the premise was built specifically to aim history toward or the future, whatever you want to call it, of the history of the universe toward that specific thing. So there are certain kinds of technology, like you're, you're trying to draw a line from like World War II USS Enterprise CV-6 mm-hmm. to USS Oriskany DSGN-797. It, it's not really going to work because there are some huge left and right turns in the history that are done to make the game fun. Sure. If you actually took what was going on today and you pushed it forward in a straight line you said we, we kind of just assumed that everything was kind of kind of keep projecting the way it is mm-hmm. there's never going to be a, a battle in space i mean ever uh, at least not between people it's all going to be robotics it's all going to be drones right um 
The problem is nobody who plays war games wants to play a fucking robot. Oh, no, 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 Jim. Robotech. What? Robotech. No. Nobody wants to play a robot. I mean, come on. <laughs> people want to play, you know, people. Um, so we had to do certain things with AI technology. We had to do certain things with aerospace technology. Yeah. Of course, we had to break the light barrier. Um, we had to explain why there's no – why Germany and Russia, when they decide to go to war, they go to war at Procyon instead of in Poland like they have for the last thousand years. Sure. Why are they sending starships out to Sirius? have a war so there's all this explanation and a lot of it's kind of you know i don't want to say ham-fisted but yeah um it has to be to kind of explain why the game is taking place sure okay so back to the question what generation was that oh geez it it would be (laughs) way well the way technology works in dark star very very briefly they finally had to again get that unifying theory that theory that kind of glues together quantum mechanics and uh in relativity, that's the only way you're going to have anything like an Alcubierre drive. If you've done any reading on what Dr. Miguel Alcubierre has done uh, as far as developing an actual workable faster than light drive, they've pretty much found the graviton and thereby the anti-graviton so they can, you know, manipulate space time to, to basically create what we would almost call a warp drive. Mm-hmm. No. <laughs> <laughs> thousands of years in the future. We haven't said it 500 years in the future. We're way too optimistic. Um, but that's the only way that we can get, you know, fun, sure. fun stuff you know, happening out in space. Right. The other possibility is like some, like almost like the, what the expanse does, which is somehow a magic gate appears and that magic gate leads to other places. Mm-hmm. That has some incredibly, uh, advantageous things for, um, for wargaming in space. Because that definitely gives you something to fight over. I mean, holy crap. If there was like a warp gate, kind of a network or whatever, those junctions where the warp gates meet are going to be the only thing worth fighting over. Gotcha. Otherwise, what would anyone fight over in space? You know? Well, All resources, territory, you know. No. Territory in space? Well, well. How many billions and trillions of cubic? I mean, the, the, the solar system itself is several, you know, billion. Uh, I don't even know. That's probably not even right. Resources? The, uh, oh, the aliens came to Earth mm-hmm. to take our water. They went right past Europa that has like 15 times more water than Earth does. Or they went right past, you know, the, the, the gas giant clouds of Jupiter that have billions of times more water than Earth has ever had. I mean, the idea of fighting over resources in space is, it doesn't work. Um, yeah, well, yeah, maybe this, they this, need a waypoint along the way to, you know, refuel, restock. Maybe it's a good vacation spot. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, they're, 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 <laughs> this, 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 this kind of goes into the background of Dark Star. Why are they fighting? Right. Um, again, I want to take the whole Let, let's, the let's, about it. But you got to look at it this way, Jim. You're talking about the human race. They have fought oh. over dumber things, you know. I am going to post the promo Too video bad. for Dark Star. <laughs> The Dark Star video that actually gets people to play or whatever uh-huh. starts off with these grand space vistas, and he's like, the stars, the last place we haven't destroyed. There should be room <laughs> enough for everyone. Plenty to share. New worlds to explore. There should be room enough to everybody. Cut to a slide of Space Battleship Yamato. But that's just not our way. We are who we are. We just can't help ourselves. I'll post that video. Yeah, please. I mean, it's, it's, it's literally just we're fighting because we're people. That's why there's no aliens. Because I don't want the human race united. It's just going to be pissant 
you know, the yep. usual. And I'm not the only person to do this. Um, way before I did, God knows, uh, Serenity uh, and Firefly did this. There are no aliens in that in that verse. It's just people fighting over the usual bullshit. Right. Um, BattleTech. Holy crap! You know, the the the, the IP that was. 40k before 40k was a glimmer in you know gw's eye no aliens just people went out there they had their shit together they had basically like the star trek federation thing and it lasted for about 100 years and then it just fell apart because we are who we are yeah yep all right guys so for everybody out there there's food for thought how would you game space force or you know would it be satellite combat where you're using satellite for intelligence for some kind of ground combat that, you know, we're actually kind of doing now? Um, you know, would it be linked into some kind of uh, AI, you know, weapons here on the planet? Would it be the Chinese and the Americans trying to take over the moon? You know, uh, granted, we're talking far out, hypothetical situations you know, uh, t- things like that. So tell us how you would uh, play Space Force, since Space Force is now a reality, um, you know, and they're still trying to figure out their mission, um, you know, because as Jim has so eloquently stated, right now it's it's satellites, you know. It's more intelligence gathering and counterintelligence than anything else at this point, you know, because of several treaties, as he said, that, you know, we can't put weapons in space, uh, hence Star Wars back in the Reagan era. Um, it doesn't mean nobody's doing it, but right. we're not claiming it. we've done it, but come on. Seriously, you think, you know, there aren't satellites from many different countries not up there that don't have some type of defensive or offensive capability? Uh, I think that would be naive of us to think that. So well, the, uh, but what is the, what are the rules? It doesn't say any weapon. It, it gets into specifics. I believe it's a, you cannot have um, some kind of um, rocket missile systems from space. No, no offensive capability. Then. Right. So, um, yeah. But even having a satellite, being able to pilot into a, another satellite. Well, I mean, you could do that with any satellite that you have control over. They can yeah, already honestly. do that. Is yeah, yeah. yeah. So. And we need to stop doing it because there's enough, I don't know if you guys have ever read any articles about this, there's enough space debris in low Earth orbit. We are within, to use an expression my dad uses, a frog's hair split three ways. We are very, very close to sealing ourselves on Earth forever yeah. because it's getting to the point where we can't put anything else in orbit. There's that much crap floating around up there. Yep. They're going to have to send the waste management collide, up. That's going to be 10 million yeah. pieces of garbage. Yeah. And they're yeah. going to hit other things, and it's going to become this cascade effect. Yeah, they're, they're going to have to send waste management up and clean up collect. the atmosphere. So, hey, yeah, so maybe there's a career field, uh, salvager in space. There you go. Yeah. It, it, it'll all be defensive weapons, you know, to, to shoot the space junk before it hits you. Just remember, Chris, the greatest defensive weapon is the best offensive weapon. So no, best offense is the Bears defense. No, whatever. The Bears haven't won a Super Bowl since 1985. So they still have one of the better defenses. One and done, Chris. One and done. All right. Hey, hey, take it easy on that. <laughs> <We're> rebuilding. <laughs> yeah, they've been rebuilding like the Cubs. 
All right, here we go. All right, guys, thank you very much for joining us on this uh, latest edition of the Sit Rep Podcast. We hope you enjoy it, so please make sure you like, subscribe, follow us on all our channels. Uh, let others know about us as we continue to climb on our next goal. I'm not going to tell you what our next goal is yet because I haven't figured it out yet. I have a lofty goal, but uh, I want to be realistic. So uh, I think our goal right now is just to provide you with good quality content. Uh, this Wednesday, I'm not sure what I'm doing for a video, but um, I will be doing something. So um, we'll see if I have one of my two videos up. I don't know if I'll have them completed by then. But there will be a live stream or a video released on Wednesday. And then, uh, of course, every Sunday we have live gaming. Um, I am also working on a uh, quote-unquote movie uh, based upon DCS Supercarrier. Um going to do some uh, air-to-air combat with some air-to-ground combat. Um, so you're going to see some Warthog action. So uh, just keep that in mind. All right, guys. So yes. f- for the rest of the team, we want to say thank you very much. Have a happy time gaming. Get your minis on the table. And uh, we will see you soon. You have been listening to the Citrep podcast. We hope you have enjoyed the show. Make sure you like and subscribe to all of our channels on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, Twitch, and Discord. Remember to join us every other weekend for a new episode of the podcast. And don't forget our other programming on Wednesdays and Sundays. Thanks for listening.